New American Left with your host, Kieran Murphy. What O'Connell said of the history of Ireland may with greater truth be said of the Negroes. It may be traced like a wounded man through a crowd by the blood. Frederick Douglass, 1867. With March passing and April beginning, it marks an interesting time of year for myself. I am of Irish-American descent. I've been active in the Irish political movement since before I could be active in a political movement. And always around this time of year, we run into these issues because of St. Patrick's Day. Now, I could go on for a few episodes about the problems I have with St. Patrick's Day, but that's not really what this is about. It's just around that time of year, we often see a cropping up of the Irish were slaves too meme. Forced and bonded labor. John Bowne for InfoWars.com. U.S. history books promote the notion that the Irish were merely indentured servants. 1641 1652, the British killed 500,000 while selling 300,000 of them into slavery. They don't run around going Irish but lives I matter. It's often directed by other Irish Americans and used in a way to indicate that we were treated poorly as well, so why don't you get over it? We certainly did. And, I mean, anyone who really actually understands their Irish history or American civil rights history knows that that's just nonsense. It's not true. The Irish were not slaves. However, on the other side of the coin, it also isn't meant to minimize exactly what has happened in Irish history. The Irish have been brutally oppressed at the hands of the British Empire. And African Americans have been brutally oppressed at the hands of the American government and society. These are not things that should separate us. They are things that should unite us. And often in the Irish freedom movement, they do. Irish Americans, however, do not notice this or willfully ignore it. But there has been many points throughout our history where those two movements have intersected and supported each other. As far back as Frederick Douglass and the mid-19th century. Frederick Douglass became a correspondence friend with Daniel O'Connell. As far as Ireland seeking to be free of the British Empire, you could trace the modern movement to Daniel O'Connell. He was our first taste of a modern civil rights movement. He was the first person to think that, okay, well, through the electoral process, perhaps, we can free Ireland of British oppression. Up until that point, Britain had been a presence in Ireland for hundreds of years. 
I mean, we could do a whole season on the Cromwell occupation and the atrocities committed by him. And there's many different cases of rebellion and revolt all throughout Irish history. You would easily be able to argue that there's always an uneasiness of tension all throughout Irish history because of the presence of the British Empire. And this would spark itself and sort of erupt from time to time in armed struggle. Daniel O'Connell wanted to organize and achieve the same ends through a more electoral and peaceful process, if at all possible. And he was a great, a great orator, a great inspiration to many abolitionists throughout the world, including Frederick Douglass. Now, as Daniel O'Connell said in a letter to Bishop Doyle in 1831, No person knows better than you do that the domination of England is the sole and blighting curse of this country. It is the incubus that sits on our energies, stops the pulsation of the nation's heart, and leaves to Ireland not gay vitality, but horrid the convulsions of a troubled dream. It was letters such as this, speeches, that made their way to the ears of Frederick Douglass. And Frederick Douglass was invited to join Daniel O'Connell in Ireland and give a speaking tour. This tour had a great impact on Frederick Douglass, as can be seen from many of his writings. Now, his speeches, which you can also read, are excellent. I mean, he's a, a phenomenal orator in and of itself. But the conclusions that he drew from his speaking tour in Ireland weren't always revealed in his speeches there, because Douglas encountered something that he didn't quite expect. He would go to these speeches that were being given by the abolitionists, but the abolitionists tend to be more on the wealthy side of the landowning gentry in Ireland, who were very pro-abolitionist. They were anti-slavery. They were vocal in their opposition and, and for social justice. And, and I think we might be able to see some mirrors today in our current Democratic Party. They talked a good game, so to speak. But Douglas noted that as he walked through the streets of Ireland, he would see the peasants and the working class in a horrid state. They had just come off of the famine. Things were still terrible. The peasantry was completely oppressed and dying and withering away before their eyes. And this had a great impact on Douglas because he recognized it. And as he said in a letter back to William Lloyd Garrison, A board on a box for a table, rags on straw for a bed, and a picture of the crucifixion on the wall. I see much here to remind me of my former condition, and I confess I should be ashamed to lift my voice against American slavery, but that I know the cause of humanity has won the world over. What... Douglas is saying there is that he was almost ashamed to speak of slavery to these people who are clearly fostering a similar condition on other people in their own country. And this was confusing to Douglas, but he recognized in that moment that it wasn't merely the cause of African-American slavery that he was a champion of, but he was champion of defeating oppression throughout the world. 
and many different places around the world suffer from different forms of oppression. And this sort of opened Douglas's eyes to that. And he became an international figure at that point. The intersection between the black liberation movements in America and the Irish liberation movements in Ireland are the same. They fight the same cause, and they are meant to support each other. But the crux of our issue today is why does that not happen in Irish America? And that's one of the things that Douglas points out in this extended passage. Address to Lincoln Hall. Color prejudice is not the only prejudice against which a republic like ours should guard. The spirit of caste is dangerous everywhere. There is the prejudice of the rich against the poor, the pride and prejudice of the idle dandy against the hard-working man. There is, worst of all, religious prejudice, a prejudice which has stained a whole continent with blood. It is, in fact, a spirit infernal, against which every enlightened man should wage perpetual war. Perhaps no class of our fellow citizens have carried this prejudice against color to a point more extreme and more dangerous than have our Catholic Irish fellow citizens. And yet no people on the fact of the earth have been more relentlessly persecuted and oppressed on account of race and religion than the Irish people. But in Ireland, persecution has had last reached a point where it reacts terribly upon her persecutors. England today is reaping the bitter consequences of her injustice and depression. Ask any man of intelligence today, what is the chief source of England's weakness? What has reduced her to the rank of a second-class power? And the answer will be, Ireland. Poor, ragged, hungry, starving and oppressed as she is, she is strong enough to be standing menace to the power and glory of England. Fellow citizens, we want no black Ireland in America. We want no aggrieved class in America. Strong as we without the Negro, we are stronger with him than without him. The power and friendship of seven millions of people scattered all over the country, however humble, are not to be despised. Today, our Republic sits as a queen among the nations of the earth. Peace is within her walls, and plenteousness within her palaces. But he is a bolder and far more hopeful man than I am, who will affirm that this peace and prosperity will always last. History repeats itself. What has happened once may happen again. The prophetic nature of that passage from Frederick Douglass as an Irish American who supports Irish liberation, it gives me chills every time. He points out that the path that Ireland has walked could very well be something that happens to America if we don't change our ways. And he also makes note of the fact that some of the worst prejudice that African Americans suffer comes from Irish Americans. And that's true. I've seen that in my own life. I fight against it constantly within my own family. It borders on cognitive dissonance. Because I'll let you in on the Irish community a little bit. It sort of breaks down into a couple of things. You're either 
Irish American and kind of in it at a uh, surface level, you know, you show up on St. Patrick's Day with a green shirt on and some god awful sayings like I've been seeing the past couple years, like green beers matter or or all drunk lives matter or some offensive nonsense. And those people have no idea what they're doing. And they're, those are so ignorant, I almost can't even deal with them. So, but then there's a, a substrata of Irish Americans who are extremely prejudiced against African Americans and yet also support the Irish freedom movement. And that becomes a lot more hypocritical in my eyes. Um, because if you deny the fact that the Irish freedom movement has always supported the black liberation movement, you're not being honest. I mean, I'll, I'll pretend you're not willfully lying if you like, but in general, you're lying. So that is the crux of pointing out these intersections where Frederick Douglass was inspired throughout Ireland by what he saw and his relationship with Daniel O'Connell, our great civil rights leader. And the two of them saw that these two movements had everything in common and were allies. And along the way, over the boats to Ireland, as the Irish arrived, we lost that. And there's a few reasons for that, in my opinion. The Irish arrived to a heavily Anglican Protestant country that also hated them, just like the British Empire did. And that forced them into a couple of things, usually the lower rungs of society, straight where the African Americans were living. This fostered a lot of competition between jobs, economics, whatever. We could go into a whole course on why, but this led to Irish Americans having real serious issues with African Americans. And it's one of the great shames of our country. I, I, I don't understand. I mean, for me, at a personal level, it's one of my great personal shames because I'm, I'm an Irish American. I've never harbored those feelings. I was lucky enough to be raised with our history to know that there was these intersections. So it never, never made sense to me. I only saw parallels between the movements and how we should be able to support each other. And sadly today, what I see often in this time of St. Patrick's Day is that either Irish American leftists will disavow their Irishness because of the behavior of racist Irish Americans, or African Americans who are part of the Black Liberation Movement will attack Irish people based on stereotypical stuff, drinking jokes and red hair and like and a bunch of nonsense. And what I would say to the Black Liberation Movement, when we review our history together, our own history is a far better weapon to combat those Irish Americans who are ignorant of it than fostering stereotypes. So the idea behind this is that this I want to spark your investigative side. I want people to go out and read. I want people to go out and research this so you can see that our movements always have been and should continue to always be aligned. And Irish Americans need to get their act together. If they don't want to be part of the Irish freedom movement and they'd like to be American conservatives, then go ahead. 
but you simply can't have it both ways. James Connolly would not support you. <laughs> so know that. You know, Podrick Pierce would not support this. Bobby Sands would not support this. So you cannot be in the Irish freedom movement and maintain any sort of prejudice towards African Americans. It's a non sequitur. Furthermore, this intersection wasn't just between Frederick Douglass and Daniel O'Connell. It wasn't a one-time passing event. It was repeated straight through into the 1960s, where both, I think we all know here from our own American history, was a serious time of reform in the civil rights movement. In Ireland, particularly Northern Ireland, it was the same. And quite often, activists from Northern Ireland were drawing inspiration directly from activists here. There's a great book I want to share a couple passages from, and I know it's a difficult one to get a hold of, but you can find excerpts of it online. It's called Black and Green, The Fight for Civil Rights in Northern Ireland and Black America by Brian Dooley. And here he goes into a comprehensive history of all the intersections in the 60s, 70s, and 80s between the Irish civil rights movement in Northern Ireland and that in Black America. A really interesting read. With these excerpts, I just want to show and highlight a few of those, a few of those intersections. Derry Radicals O'Doherty and Eamon McCann both spent time working in London in the mid-1960s. For McCann, this meant exposure to the international left. Joining the anti-nuclear Aldermaist in March, and involvement in the beginnings of the anti-Vietnam War movement. By 1966, he said, he would have known quite a lot about black American radical Stokely Carmichael and political splits between the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and the NAACP. In fact, McCann met Carmichael at a conference in London in the mid-1960s where McCann spoke about discrimination in Northern Ireland. O'Doherty, meanwhile, was encountering the U.S. civil rights movements via his membership of the Connolly Association, a London-based socialist Republican organization dedicated to the ideals of Irish revolutionary James Connolly, executed for his part in the 1916 Rising. The Connolly Association's membership base was drawn from the Irish community living in England, Scotland, and Wales, and it produced a newspaper, The Irish Democrat, which reported on the struggle for civil rights in Northern Ireland and in the U.S. As early as February 1964, the Irish Democrat produced an editorial which declared the discrimination in Northern Ireland is the exact parallel of the Negro question in the United States. For in that country, the freedom of the people as a whole is dependent entirely on the emancipation of the colored people. What the O'Doherty is saying there is that he is basically declaring openly that the Irish struggle for freedom is in fact one in the same as the black American liberation movement. And he wants to draw that comparison because at the time he is actually seeing real progress in America. Whereas in Ireland, it has felt like an awful long time since there's been any progress. So he's seeing a tactic and a strategy at play that's working. He understands that this is the way to move forward the cause for Irish freedom. He also understands that true American freedom, the ideals that were set forth in our founding documents that we never achieved 
is tied directly to true emancipation of African Americans. This is a fundamental fact often lost on many people in this country, including people who identify as liberal Democrats, that until we address the fundamental inequality at the base of our society here, there will never be true freedom for anyone. And the authorities making this, this conclusion in the 60s, in Ireland, and seeing the parallels in his own people. Dooley in Black and Green goes on to say, The following year, the Democrat reminded readers of Cromwell's part in shipping thousands of Irish to plantations in the Caribbean, and suggested that the Irish living in Britain had much in common with their West Indian neighbors and featured a photograph of Catholic nuns from the New York Archdiocese taking part in a civil rights march in Harlem. O'Doherty became a correspondent for the Irish Democrat on his return to Derry in 1966, and remembers the influence of the paper's international page in comparing American blacks with the position of Catholics in Northern Ireland. The international page carried a long piece in February 1967, and expanding on all the similarities between Northern Ireland and the American South. There is regional discrimination siphoning industry away from colored areas, just as industries are kept at the Lagan Valley of Ulster, while Catholic areas like Newry, Derry, and Strabane do without. There are Negroes' jobs and white men's jobs, just as there are Catholic and Protestant jobs in the six counties. There are whole trades where Negroes do not work and are not encouraged to work. This goes for Catholics in the six counties also. Irish people should take an interest in and support the struggle for Negro rights in the USA. And meanwhile, in the USA, Irish Americans were not doing that. I am a great fan, follower, and, and consumer, I guess, of Irish music. And it's interesting because I'm an Irish American, I'm born here, and yet I have a deep understanding of Irish music and been playing it my whole life. And there's really only one bunch of people to thank for that, and that's the Clancy Brothers and Tommy Makem. Because at the time that that article was running in the Irish Democrat, calling on supporters of Irish freedom to stand with African Americans in their struggle. Irish Americans were having a the beginning of a renaissance of their culture here in America. As most people know today, you can't throw a rock without hitting an Irish pub in America, sporting Irish people playing Irish tunes, what would you do with a drunken sailor, etc. <laughs> but that was not always the case. I think a lot of people believe that Irish Americans emigrated to America and that has been the way we've been the whole time. But no, that would be incorrect. See, part of the friction and the wedge between the African American and the Irish American community is they were both struggling to get out of the economic basement of our society. But the Irish had a small advantage. If they shed their accent and their names and their history and their music, 
they could often fit in and disappear into the American society and rise through the ranks to become policymakers, policemen, firemen, and eventually, president. No nation, large or small, can be indifferent to the fate of others, near or far. Modern economics, weapons, and communications have made us realize more than ever that we are one human family, and this one planet is our home. Ireland is clad in the cause of national and human liberty with peace. When John Kennedy Jr. was inaugurated as President of the United States, it was viewed by many Irish Americans as the crowning achievement of climbing the hill. They had done it. They have been fully accepted by the American society which hated them when they arrived. If you take some time and go to a library or, well, why even, just go to Google, and you can look up uh, from the New York Sun, or any of the major papers at the time, anti-immigrant Irish cartoons, sayings, articles, which outside of the 19th century language could very well be on Fox News today. It's virtually the same language. But when John Kennedy came into office, it had shown Irish Americans had successfully shed their second-class citizen status and had finally achieved the ultimate dream. And then almost as if a haunting echo of the past and a ghost was awoke and came back in March 17th of 1961, something changed for Irish Americans because the Clancy brothers and Tommy Makem appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show. And now, continuing the Irish theme, Ireland's Clancy Brothers and Tommy make them sing Wild Colonial Boys. So let's have a time. wouldn't know it at the time, but this was an extraordinary moment for Irish Americans. They had just come to this point where they had reached the top of the hill. They, we have a president in the White House. We are fully accepted. And our history came calling. The Clancy Brothers were excellent performers. They were trained in acting and theater and singing but they're, the playing of the tunes, as we often refer to them, that was just something they did. You know, that wasn't what they wanted to come to America to be famous for. They were coming to be very serious actors of the stage and theater of Broadway. What they did in their kitchen is what ended up being a major impact on the society at large and a cultural revolution for Irish Americans. They brought back our history. Prior to their arrival, Irish-American music, the understanding of Irish music, was confined to hymns and vaudevillian-style Irish reviews. 
like I'll take you home again, Kathleen, and you know it, it is what it is. You know if you have a nostalgia for it, I understand that. But what the Clancy's did with Tommy Mankum was bring our history back to us, and what Irish Americans weren't ready to see was that our history was a mirror in which we would see things that we might not like. Effectively, they had come over here and were well aware of the, the struggles in Ireland, and they aligned, as the Irish Freedom Movement had, with the struggle of the Black Liberation Movement in America. So at one point, the Clancy brothers go to throw a fundraising concert for the NAACP. And Liam remarks that he didn't think anything, you know, was going to be different about it. He just thought this made sense. These were, you know, parallel reasons for doing things. So he expected the normal turnout. And what he saw was almost no one in the crowd. And he caught a lot of flack for it from Irish Americans. And what always stuck with me when Liam said it to me, and on this video, was he mentioned he was blown away by the arrogance of Irish Americans to completely forget the history of their treatment at the hands of the English. And it blew his mind. He didn't even think it was possible. And that moment he could see that there was something different here in America. We Irish Americans have a problem and we haven't quite fixed it yet this brings me to our next dynamic character in the story she looms large in my life because she has, in my house, been a focal point of resistance. She is the embodiment of what is expected of being an Irish person in our house. Bernadette Devlin was often referred to as Fidel Castro in a miniskirt, and she was nothing if not a fire starter. Her legend abounds. There are so many great stories about Bernadette Devlin, they'd be hard to get into here. But she was elected to Parliament as a young woman. She spent time on the barricades at the Bogside, hurling rocks at British soldiers, survived a serious assassination attempt. She, one time when a uh, member of Parliament made a disparaging remark about the incident in Derry City, which we will get into, uh, she ran across the floor of Parliament and punched him in the face, and when they pulled her off and reprimanded her later, she said, he's lucky I couldn't get my hands around his neck. The myths and the legends are amazing surrounding Bernadette Devlin. When she came to America in 1969 and 70 for a whirlwind tour of the whole country to try to drum up support for the Irish Republican movement, she didn't exactly arrive to what she expected. Fidel Castro in a miniskirt, Bernadette Devlin's first U.S. tour, Tara Keenan Thompson, 
Devlin swept through New York escorted by a police force willfully ignorant of her revolutionary rhetoric. She took part in Meet the Press and the Johnny Carson Show. Mayor Lindsay gave her the key to the city of New York. She met with Uthant of the United Nations, and she was showered with cash the entire time. As the tour progressed, Devlin began to pick up distinctly orange tones in the green rhetoric of the organizers. She marveled at how the Irish in America failed to draw the obvious parallel between themselves and American blacks. In Philadelphia, she danced with a black tenor on stage, asked him to sing the American Civil Rights Anthem, We Shall Overcome, and shamed the audience into standing for him. The dignitaries, clergy, and Hibernians, however, remained stuck to their seats. Then the unthinkable happened. She visited Operation Bootstrap, a manufacturing venture run by members of the Black Power Movement. Despite warnings, Devlin continued her assault on Irish America's racism, and reports of it tore through the newswires. On her way back to the East Coast, she stopped in Detroit and refused to speak until the black people waiting outside were admitted. While there, Chicago activists warned the tour organizers that if she visited Jesse Jackson's Operation Breadbasket, she would face consequences. Though the message had the desired effect, Devlin acquired a new target. She hurled the words corrupt and R.U.C. across the pages of the local papers at a hugely popular Mayor Daly and his police. <laughs> he canceled his her appearance. <laughs> Sorry, I just, I love this woman. The two Unionist Party representatives sent to neutralize her tour could not have been more delighted. Almost the instant their toes hit the tarmac, they happily clucked that Devlin was nothing less than Fidel Castro in a miniskirt and sang a gleeful chorus of We Told You So. Devlin's relationship with much of Irish America was in tatters by the end of the tour, as was her rapport with Heron and the Republicans. At one of the last events, she overheard an organizer tell Heron, Never mind, play her along. We've got the money and that's all that matters. Immediately, she ran Frank Gogarty, chair of the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association, and demanded that he fly to America. Upon arriving, Gogarty announced that while he endorsed Devlin's tour, he had come to raise money for arms. Devlin wasted no time in booking the next flight home. Back in Ireland, Eamon McCann admonished her for accepting the key to New York from Mayor John Lindsay, an American Republican famed for his mismanagement of the city. She responded by sending the key to New York with McCann, who was on his way to America to do his own speaking tour. McCann presented it to Robert Bay of the Black Panthers as a gesture of solidarity with the black liberation and revolutionary socialist movements in America. He read out her message. I return what is rightfully theirs, this symbol of the freedom of New York. What the Clancy brothers had seen, and what Bernadette Devlin had exposed, was the hypocrisy rife throughout the Irish-American community. They were more than willing to send money and support to Northern Ireland to win freedom for Irish under the heel of the British. But they were as equally unwilling to see that in their own backyard they held people to a second-class status, just as their own people at home. This hypocrisy was a lot to bear for the Irish-American community. The funds for the Irish Civil Rights Movement began to dry up. People were upset in Irish America that they were being forced to confront this image of themselves that Devlin had revealed. But then something happened. And that is the massacre in Derry City. 
commonly referred to as Bloody Sunday. During a civil rights march in Derry, British paratroopers fired into the crowd and killed 14 people. And for many people, that marks the date that the civil rights movement shifted to a movement of physical force. And that was a moment that we don't really have a parallel for in American history, though Kent State is close, but we still never really bubbled over into a full-blown insurrection after that. But that's what happened in Northern Ireland. So that sort of became the thing that people rallied around. Like the Irish Americans weren't forced to, to confront their racism in that moment because now it had become a shooting war and the funds came up again and the hats started getting passed in the bars and, you know, the money went where it went. But that moment in time where we were confronting our civil rights problem got shelved because of the hot war that had broken out. We wouldn't see international attention brought to this until 1981 during the hunger strike where 10 men died on hunger strike in British prison in Northern Ireland in an attempt to secure rights that should have been afforded to them as prisoners of war according to the Geneva Convention. Only then did we start again to get more of a civil rights lens shown on the situation in Northern Ireland. Bobby Sands, who led the hunger strike in 1981, became a humanitarian figure who transcended the IRA terrorist image that basically anyone aligned with the British media had begun to portray. So once he became a humanitarian figure, we began to see more attention, particularly from Irish America, brought to the issues in Northern Ireland. The light was being shown, and Britain was not looking good in that light in the eyes of the world. So through heavy political pressure from the U.S. and the world at large, we end up with the Good Friday Agreement. And some would say that there's peace. A relative peace, I think. There's still economic oppression. The situation over there is still not good. In the mid-2000s, I was over there and held at gunpoint by the British Army, so they're still there. The point is, in the eyes of Irish America, the war is basically over. So therefore, they could just go back to being their St. Patrick's Day selves. And that's the truth. We had a moment with Bernadette Devlin where we were beginning to look at ourselves... But since the impetus for why we were looking at ourselves sort of went away in our eyes or in the media that we consume, there was no reason to actually revisit it. And on we went. And now, we're in a time of crisis in this country. And the Western world or the world at large. It's a time to start addressing these age-old problems, which will be difficult. But when we do, it is my sincere hope that Irish Americans will look at their history that they believe in and see the connections 
with our neighbor and our brothers and sisters who are fighting for their liberation here in this country. It is our responsibility to support them. For we are all still in this struggle together. There is no differentiation. And struggle in and of itself does not make you better or worse than somebody else in struggle. We need empathy. Because if there's nothing else, the Irish are incredible fighters for freedom. When push comes to shove, we're a good people to have fighting for you. And the Black Liberation Movement in this country is made up of the same character. They are natural allies to us, and we to them. And in the struggles to come, I would promise you that anyone who stands on the side of oppressing will be very dismayed to see us working together. Shucky our law, I say to my new friends, our day will come. Don't get captured. You've been listening to The New American Left. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and visit us at thenewamericanleft.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at the new A-M-E-R left.